In this episode, special guest Dr. Judd Brewer, pioneering psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and New York Times best-selling author, returns to once again join the ongoing conversation featuring Shinzen Young, meditation teacher and neuroscience research consultant, Chelsea Fasano, a Columbia University neuroscience student, and Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, assistant director for the Center for Consciousness Studies and research professor at the University of New Mexico. In this episode, the group take a deep dive into the concepts of the self, comparing and contrasting religious models with the latest theories in neuroscience and psychology. Shinzen rethinks early Buddhist craving and aversion doctrine in the light of modern mathematics. Judd considers the clinical implications of neuromodulation and psychedelics, and the group discusses the typical learning curve to enlightenment, as well as the role of connection and communion in contemplative endeavors. So without further ado, Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, and special guest, Dr. Judd Brewer. Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, and special guest returning, Dr. Judd Brewer. Welcome back to the podcast. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, I'm so delighted that we're able to reconvene for a sequel. That episode we recorded previously, and of course, I'll link that in the show notes, uh, was just so fascinating. And as Judd put it towards the end of that episode, we'd really just begun to scratch the surface. Having uh, discussed all the very interesting work that everyone's been doing and has done, and beginning to open up a dialogue and think really rather creatively about where all this might go and how all these things might interact. So fascinating. And now we're ready to dive deeper. And uh, the person who's going to initiate that deep dive is Chelsea. So Chelsea, please, if you would. So last time we talked, we covered um, so much amazing ground with all of your work, how it relates to uh, each other, and also what kind of possibilities there are for the future of the world. And I think one of the big topics we're considering is what would it look like to democratize enlightenment and have many more people be experiencing these altered states of consciousness that used to be the property of long periods of practice that not everyone would have the privilege to do. And so uh, I think an interesting jumping off point would be to think about uh, practical applications for people right now. What are some of the ways that people can practically get to a state where there is less of their self involved in their moment to moment awareness? And to add a plot twist, what are we talking about when we talk about the self uh, neurologically? And are there gradients of selfhood that can be uh, sort of turned down with more or less ease for people, for ordinary people? Mm -hmm. What a great question to start with. So I'll, I'll jump in. You know, I, I was heavily influenced by a review paper. This is over 10 years ago by Chin and Northoff. Georg Northoff has been thinking about the self for literally for a long time, decades. And they described looking at a basically a, a review of literature, looking at self-referential processing, they kind of identified you know, a split, I would say, between two hubs of the default mode network. I know we talked a lot about the default mode network being the self-referential processing network. And they, if I remember correctly, they had this idea of the medial prefrontal cortex, one of those hubs being more of a conceptual sense of self, you know, kind of the, 
if I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror and I say, oh, that's Judd, you know, there's a concept of Judd uh, that, that is, can be updated or moment to moment and, and can feel continuous through time, but probably moment to moment updating saying, oh yeah, Judd, 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 <laughs> that type of thing. And then the, the way that they conceptualize the, uh, the, the second hub of the default mode network, the posterior cingulate was more of an experiential sense of self. And that one in particular, and these two are probably pretty closely related, but looking at some of the research from the psychedelic literature and looking at some of the research that my own lab has done with neurophenomenologic experiments, where we looked at, you know, what exactly is linking, you know, the experience, somebody's subjective experience with their brain activity, we've mostly looked at the posterior cingulate. So I can speak to that a little bit. And that seems to line up pretty well with Chin and Northoff's uh, idea around an experiential sense of self. And I think we touched on this a little bit last time, but just as a refresher for anybody listening to this as the sequel or listening to this fresh, the, this, this experience of contraction versus expansion uh, seems to be a marker of experience because we experience contraction, we experience expansion, whereas you know, Judd you know, is just a word. And so we can even start to feel into the difference between the concept of Judd and, you know, maybe Jay or Shinzen saying, Judd, that's a terrible idea where I get a contraction around it or Judd, that's a great idea. And I get a, I get a contraction around that because I'm excited, you know, I'm like, Ooh, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, ego boosting and, you know, I get some, some, my, my chest gets a little puffier, you know, type of thing, but th that can be experienced directly. And from an ex kind of from a pragmatic standpoint, the experiential sense of self to me might be a really good place with which to uh, explore, you know, the deconstruction of self and working with that because it is something we all experience. So I'll, I'll throw it to Jay and Shinzen just in terms of that opening, you know, volley, so to speak, or you know, that's one way of looking at self. Is that, does that seem pragmatic or are there other ways that we should be or more important ones? Jay, I would ask you, um, are you familiar with the study that Judd mentioned and uh, what's your take on it and what Judd just had to say? Yeah, I, I am familiar because I read one of Judd's more recent papers that cites it and I went back and read it after that. Um, Did I get it right? It, it was Chin, Chin and Nordhoff? Yes, Q-I-N yeah. is the first author, and Northoff, I think it's N-O-R-T-H-O-F-F. -F. So it's Q-I-N, <clears throat> it's a pinyin Chinese name, uh, Chin. Yes, correct. Right. Yeah, I, I would uh, agree overall with Judd's um, assessment and statement, and I would say, you know, part of, I think, what is emerging from the science as you start looking for the networks of the self, for example, you're digging into the brain and you're trying to figure out, well, where is it? And what we're finding is that it's nowhere in one network, of course, but it also seems to be composed of component processes or it's multidimensional is one way to think about it. And uh, there's a really great paper by, I believe it's Robin Carhart Harris's group. He's one of the researchers looking into psychedelics and psychedelic interventions. Um, and uh, the postdoc in his lab, I can't remember the first author right now, but the paper is about sort of going from self-modulation and mindfulness and psychedelics and trying to build a general model 
of how self transforms through these different types of interventions. And they've got this great little graph. It's one of these phenomenology graphs where they show the different pieces of the self and how long-term versus short-term practice can, can sort of modulate different parts of the self. So for example, the sort of, there's an embodied part of self. There is a part of the self that can kind of think into the future and think into the past. There's sort of auto-noetic or autobiographical uh, self. There's all these different pieces and different types of practices can modulate them in different ways, which in the clinic can be very useful if you know which piece of the self um, is being modulated. For example, if you have body trauma, uh, you might want to take ketamine, which can give you a bit of a separation from the body so you can do some work on that trauma. So, you know, I think that this general idea that it's multidimensional and there's different pieces that all can be modulated in different ways uh, is, is kind of becoming more of a accepted idea. And of course, this, this goes back to, you know, old philosophy texts 2000 years ago that were looking for the sense of self and also parsing it out. So Aristotle and Socrates and Plato were also parsing the self into these different pieces. I actually have a few of these diagrams readily available. I don't think they're by Carhart Harris, they're by Millier, but he offers a really interesting multidimensional model. If you want me to screen share, I can kind of quickly show the audience what we're sort of thinking visually, if that's helpful. Please. Mm -hmm. You'll have to verbally describe it for the people listening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's right. And, um, and as you pull it up, I'm also, this reminds me of you know going back to the ancient teachings, Richie Davidson, geez, decade, decade and a half ago, had talked at a, a Mind and Life Summer Research Institute about stickiness, you know, and, you know, of course, as an addiction psychiatrist, stickiness to me, you know, it has a lot to do with craving. And of course, craving is <laughs> all over the, all over the suttas. And so I wonder <laughs> if that, that piece of, of stickiness might even relate here to that experiential sense of self and contraction. Please, mm -hmm. Chelsea. Yes. So this chart right here shows it's by Millier, who's a psychedelic researcher, but he shows how he identifies uh, six uh, different aspects here, body ownership, bodily awareness, self-location, phenomenal, phenomenal richness, access to semantic autobiographical information and frequency of self-related thought. And then he shows how, depending on the variance of each of these things and how they're contracting or expanding, you would get a sort of different shape of self-largeness or self-smallness. Uh, those probably aren't the most scientific words, but yourself would contract and expand in different shapes uh, depending on the experience. And I, I think that's a good model to talk about the sort of nuances of what we're talking about here. And um, there's others like this too, but I, I like the way he draws it into a kind of shape that's infinitely variable almost. Just looking at that, it you know, looking at the body ownership, for example, I could see that being pretty much in line with this experiential sense of self. You know, who do, this is my body, this is me, versus you know, awareness, for example, and phenomenal richness. I think if I remember the diagram correctly, could be those pieces around where there's there's really strong awareness. I think of it as. Um, the more we take ownership over things, the more attached we are, the more identified we are, the more we take things personally, the more that becomes a smokescreen for phenomenological richness, because we are, we are starting to see the world through certain lenses, the self, you know, this me, and, and all, everybody has their own lenses. 
Yet the more we, that starts to dissolve, whether it's psychedelics or meditation or just tapping it, you know, somebody can just tap into a flow state, you know, just spontaneously. <clears throat> the more that happens, uh, the more those glasses come off and that richness pops, I could see, you know, as compared to these, these clouds or the glasses there in, in terms of the self. So here, you know, just speaking, moving a little bit toward the pragmatics, you know, I can see where the more we kind of get out of our own way, that experiential sense of self starts to dissolve, the more that richness starts to come through, the, you know, it's like the clouds part and the sun's shining through, which I think speaks, you know, is, is very much in line with at least the Buddhist teachings that I'm aware of, whereas, you know, it's like selflessness, you know, we're all enlightened all the time. It's just a matter of realizing it. Uh, but I'm curious what Shinzen and Jay think of that. <clears throat> Jay? Um, yeah, you know, I think it, it gets to this fundamental question. If you have all these different functional pieces that are integrating into the experiential self, and you can understand those as different component processes across the brain, across networks, it's a lot of energy and information that needs to be integrated into uh, what is probably an illusion of the self and not an actual physical thing in there that has a solidity to it. Um, it, it makes sense then if you were to soften, cool down some of that, some of the preference for that process, that the availability of um, le less solidity, I guess is one way to think about it, <laughs> um, would, would gives you that sort of elevated feeling of the availability of whatever's present without having to go through all that process. And one way to think about that is it's, it's less separation, more getting you closer to the input, to the sensory input. And we've talked a lot on the previous calls, which I, I'm sure you haven't had time to listen to, Judd, because there's about five or six of them, but been trying to figure out why does that, once you, once you get away from the asynchrony of the brain process, meaning the brain is processing asynchronously from the environment, and once you can sort of synchronize your sensory systems with the sensory input, and get a lot of the sort of self stuff out of the way, why does that tend to feel so good uh, within the right context? And I think that's one of, one of Chelsea's main questions. And I think you hit on it. You know, it's, you're sort of getting some of that pushing away from, from the sensory input away, and it's just giving you the availability of that good feeling. Yeah, well, it's and a lot of work to push away and hold on to things. <laughs> it takes a lot. And it, 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 it feels asynchronous and that asynchrony, you know, I think it's really, you know, where we're living most of the time. I was One just going to quickly add, Go ahead. sorry, yeah. Go we ahead. did a literature review on this concept you're talking about, Dr. Brewer, about the phenomenological richness increasing as the self decreases, because I was looking into evidence for Shinzen's element sensory clarity. And we did find a very small but convincing body of research showing that people do actually have differences in sensory processing that happen in advanced stages of meditation that correspond to an objective increase in their ability to evaluate sensory stimuli, something like a line being shorter or longer, right? So there is an objective truth to the fact that we actually are seeing the world more clearly, quite literally. And it would be something like what Shinzen talks about with this HD awareness, right? We're actually getting more pixels, so to speak. Um, so that is a fact. And I think what's in interesting about your work and what I really love about it with the idea of clinging is that 
if we were to cling to almost anything, including the self, which is a main thing that people cling to, it would cause a sort of perceptual narrowing and inattentional blindness to all of the other things occurring in reality, right? So it may not be that we need to get rid of the self, but rather if we stop clinging to it, we can broaden the, our ability to pay attention to more than just that. And as Shinzen talks about, it becomes super conductive, right? So it might not be as clear cut as killing the ego, but rather just simply widening out and letting go of the ego processes as they occur and allowing them to be more fluid. A couple things come to mind based on the ideas we've thrown around so far. So one thing is we've talked about the notion that self can be multidimensional. Um, <clears throat> that's a very important notion. Um, in mathematics, there's a generalization of a normal number. Uh, a normal number would be called a scalar value. So you can generalize that to numbers that have arbitrary dimensions, three-dimensional, four-dimensional, what have you, and those are called vectors. And uh, vectors and their transforms are what constitute the field of uh, math called linear algebra, which almost every science student has to take. So um, the notion that there can be components or parts <clears throat> or independent dimensions of some sort, I think is very grounded in science. Um, and it's also very grounded in early Buddhism. Buddhism makes a big deal about divide and conquer and the, the power that comes when you take something that seems like a gamish and tease out the independent components that are there. So I would say this is a theme that spans both the ancient world in the and the modern world. The theme of, okay, let's take this complicated thing and maybe we can view it from some angle and suddenly it's not so complicated. It's just really three dimensions, uh, three degrees of freedom, what have you. So in the West, it was used, it was applied in math and then eventually in physical science with actually the development of calculus and, and pre-calculus uh, basically takes this notion from math and then says we can divide and conquer in the real world. We can see physical systems like forces, what have you, as vector fields, uh, functions of space-time. So in the West, the notion of dimensionality was very successful in early math among the Greeks. And then when math exploded with Newton and Leibniz and the development of calculus, although it had Asian predecessors with Secchi and the South Indian schools, but you know, we think about Newton and Leibniz, sort of created a new kind of math with calculus. 
So with this view of math, we're now looking not just the mathematical independent components, which is the analysis into primes that Euclid achieved, but now the physical world can be analyzed into components. And from that, well, maybe the subjective experience can also be analyzed into components. So this vector way of thinking has been very rich in the West with science, but what the Buddha did, or at least what early Buddhism did, it's a little hard to actually know what the historical Buddha himself taught, but we have a reflection certainly of early Buddhism in the Pali scriptures. And there this notion is very central and it's expressed in various ways. Um, sometimes the five elements are the the five uh, or the uh, the dimensions are the five aggregates. There's just these aggregates, and when you stop clinging to them, the the problems all go away. Sometimes it's the four great elements. With regards to the body, there's just earth, water, air, fire. Uh, uh, qualities, and when you deconstruct it that way, the somethingness of body self goes away. That's another break it into components way of working. Or the four foundations of mindfulness could be viewed as different components of self, um, uh, sensorially speaking. So Early Buddhism does it with the sense of self and the it is say, okay, there's a dimensionality here and we're going to uh, utilize that to get understanding and empowerment. So this is just a quick review of this whole notion, just to sort of put some icing on the cake there's a lot of uh, inaccurate quotes from Einstein on the internet. Um, many, many, many. Um, some of them relating to Buddhism that I wish were true, but aren't. <laughs> um, but in any event, one thing we know he definitely did say, because we've got it in the original German, um, uh, I think it's called mein, meine Welt built or something like that. And it was translated into English, my view of the world, something like that. And he's, Einstein did say, the worth of a human being is measured <clears throat> by uh, the sense in which and the degree to which they have transcended their small identity. That is an actual quote. Well, he's sort of saying, the whole ego grasping thing should be looked upon vectorially, right? Sense and magnitude, this is a vector space. Um, so call it axial thinking, call it divide and conquer, call it dimensionality, call it finding atoms or the canonical eigen 
basis of the system. These are all ways of saying the same thing. It's been enormously productive, East and West, ancient and modern. So I just wanted to chime in on that theme and then say, I think it's going to be helpful to make some distinctions. This vector, or let's look at the components kind of approach can be applied on one hand to the biological system that is the brain. Call it neurocorrelates, call it neuro, uh, uh, um, uh, neurophenomenology, no, phenomenology, color what for? you want, but the brain's doing things and we can use SI units and standard mathematics to model what the brain is doing. And we can try to analyze that in terms of components. This region dances with this region and this region in this way at this time to this effect. But we're really talking about, of course, Jay said it and I like the juxtaposition, energy and information as a function of space-time. That's what we're talking about. So there's what the brain is doing and we can analyze that into components. Then there is the subjective report of a practitioner. And depending on what the uh, conceptual framework of their practice system is, they may or may not be set up to give you um, a report of their sensory experience of self based on <clears throat> a system that they are practicing. Now, one of the things that characterizes the UM system is that people that use our system can do that. If you ask them uh, to describe their experience of self, they can do it in terms of mental image, mental talk, emotional body sensations, perhaps also including physical body and therefore anything in the body. But they, they will be able to analyze it into three or four basic components that way and tell you in real time the relative intensity and the relative uh, degree of uh, push and pull versus fluidity and so forth. Now that's a, of course I built dimensionality into my system um, intentionally so that we could take subjective reports and know that people are on pretty much the same page. So there are early Buddhism has a number of dimensional analyses, either explicit or implicit. Confusingly different, the, the people that wrote those analyses are no longer living. Different modern traditions 
unfortunately, confusingly give different interpretations of some of that. Try, for example, to get enlightenment using the five aggregates. Everyone talks about it as part of scholastic Buddhism. How do you set up a meditation system based on that? Well, you can do it. I've actually done it as an experiment, but it's pretty counterintuitive mm -hmm. and not easy to do. On the other hand, mental image, mental talk, and emotional body sensation, that's only three things. And people can, can learn to track those pretty well. So that's dimensionality implemented for a, a subjective report. Then there's that nice uh, radar chart. I guess that's what that's called. That, uh, is that right, Jay? That kind of diagram? Yeah, ra radar chart that, is one term. Uh, what's the other? There's a better term. Um, I can't remember. I, I call them radar charts. Yeah, yeah. okay. Well, that's terms. what we'll call it then. So. That's someone's idea about how the self should be organized. And sure, they're trying to relate it to phen phenomenology as experienced and the neuroscience as hypothesized, but it's still, I put that kind of dimensional analysis into the philosophy category, uh, not to denigrate it. It's just sort of, it's sort of speculative. Now, the name of the game here, I would think would be get, to get an alignment between those three domains. The subjective reports are dimensional and the brain science is dimensional. And then we link those and make the philosophy and the theory somehow. But I do believe that they are different critters. The, the way we're philosophizing about these regions and what we see just in the physicality of the brain. And then what a expert or non-expert, trained or not trained in an ontology of self would report as their subjective experience. These are three different domains. They're all amenable to the dimensionality approach. And I would think we would try to get this lined up somehow. Yeah, I could see it. I agree with the importance of lining these things up. And also, you know, as a, what was the quote from Winnie the Pooh? I'm a, I'm a bear of very little brain. Uh, so big words, you know, bother me or something like that. Um, thinking, keeping things simple as a, you know, as a clinician, uh, wanting to be able to help my patients and really trying to distill it down to the essence of what might be pragmatically helpful for them in terms of what would one dimension be, for example, for them to zoom in on, kind of get get calibrated around, and then be able to go home and practice, you know, where this is where I could see, I think a lot of the work with 
the psychedelics is has pointed to this. I, I'm guessing the work that you all have done points to this as well. And certainly some of the research that my lab has done is congruent with it at least, where looking at this this aspect of this dimension of open and closed, for example, for example, I think we've spoken about this before, that is a relatively simple language and relatively straightforward for somebody to tap into. I see the psychedelics helping people see how far the spectrum can be on one end when it's they look into open. Uh, flow is the same way. If somebody hasn't experienced flow or hasn't uh, had experience with psychedelics, they might not know how open their experience can actually be, you know, kind of opening up that aspect of self with, you know, it's like the parts, the clouds are parting so much that it's a super sunny sky, so to speak, with the analogy there. So I'm wondering how one might zoom in on that dimension, if that is one dimension to zoom in onto. And as a as a behavioral neuroscientist, I always think about, you know, how does the brain learn? It learns through reward-based learning. You know, most, you know, 99% of what we learn is through that. And so have you learned anything from your work? So this could even be the work with meditators and helping them develop that clarity and being able to see experience clearly, zoom in on clinging, for example, as a, an aspect of contraction or just lining up those words. And even work that you've done with the ultrasound that might help people see how rewarding it is to kind of put down that mantle or put down that heavy burden of the experience of self as they open to experience. Yeah, I also I think... wonder, sorry, oh, go ahead. Okay. I no, was go just going to add to this, what I'm thinking as you two are talking is that there's one thing is having the experience of letting go of the self or feeling more open or more in flow. And the other thing is identifying that you've had it. And so if people aren't given mm -hmm. some mechanism with which to do that, they might actually be having these experiences already. And I'm, there's definitely teachers that argue that people are just in, you know, breastfeeding their child or making love or watching a sunset or any of these other things that happen in a human life, but just not have thought about it in that particular way. So there's like the calibration to one's own experience issue that's interesting to think about as we're talking about this. Yeah, I think that's really insightful that in the lab, we call that the scaffold of the new self. So you've got this old self that has developed over, you know, in my case, 38 years, that's functionally very helpful to have. Uh, to navigate the world, but it has maybe developed some unhealthy habits that although help me act in the world in a way that's getting the job done, maybe it's not the most skillful way to be in the world, and it's also causing a lot of trouble. So that's the, sort, the current sort of, you know, self uh, skyscraper that I built. And so now you have these new experiences that don't quite fit into that scaffold, and they sort of float in this uh, you know, weird space of human experience. I uh, take a psychedelic, for example, you get this opening, but it doesn't quite fit into the brain and learning systems don't know how to quite fit that into action in the world. And so the, the scaffold, the sort of cognitive framework to even understand, you know, what is equanimity or what is clinging and aversion? And how does that relate to how I currently understand myself? I think is tapping into what Judd's talking about. You have to learn how to fit that into a new model that helps you navigate the world. And that is exactly what some of the early subjects have reported in our studies. 
Uh, you know, so in the last podcast, we talked about how we're targeting the posterior cingulate, which is a part of the brain that we targeted specifically because of some of Judd's awesome papers. And in those studies, some of our early meditator, or some of our early subjects are non-meditators. So they don't have a meditation scaffold. They don't have any kind of framework for thinking about equanimity or stickiness, any of the looseness that can happen in these, these networks of the self that we're talking about. And the reports that they will have will be things like, my thoughts are less stuck. You know, they don't have the words for it, but they'll say like, specifically in my thought space, the thought will come and go. You know, we're sort of asking them these phenomenology questions like, well, what is that like for you? And they're like, well, I guess that's pretty nice, <laughs> right? So they're not even tuning in really to the valence of it so much because it's just a study. They're sitting in the MRI, they're, they're getting paid. You know, they're not being told about meditation or enlightenment or any of these things <laughs> that some of us might be interested in. Um, they're just being told, you know, this is a study about the default mode network and a change. So, you know, without that scaffold, they can have these interesting experiences that then later on when we tell them, you know, the hypothesis of the study. So at the end of our study, we tell people what we're trying to do. Then they say, oh, I've heard about that. You know, I've heard about meditation and we've actually had some participants say, maybe I should go meditate. And actually some of our <laughs> participants have started meditating. <laughs> so as soon as they got that little scaffold, they can fit that experience into it. And, you know, that's part of the integration piece, I think, that we were talking about last time that, you know, you can keep doing these interventions into these states, but if you don't have a way to rebuild that into a new learning system, a new self that has learned from that, uh, they get just kind of stored off in the weird part of brain experience. The okay. other, uh, th oh, go ahead. The other thing, um, sort of <clears throat> off of what you said, Shenzhen, and, and to Judd's question, um, it sounds like if there is this multidimensional breakdown in systems that get reintegrated into the self, then there likely is this stickiness process, this expansion contraction process that you were describing, Judd, in each of those systems. And even as I say that, having the self that feels very solid, I feel like there's a graspiness to it and it's one dimensional. Like the self is grasping and the self pushes away from pain. And I, that's basically how it works from my experience. But it looks like from our studies, when we're targeting into these systems, like the default mode network, it looks like we can give a little bit of unstickiness to one little piece of the self, which is the part of the self that thinks about the past and the future, for example. And if we target a different piece of the network, it looks like we can give that less stickiness to the body piece of the self. And so people, will have the same amount of stickiness to their negative thoughts or whatever, but now they're sort of loose in the body dimension. Um, and so I don't know if that matches well, the old Buddhist idea. That would idea. be huge if we see a statistical pattern like that. Let me just repeat what you're saying to make sure I understand. Uh, you're suggesting that the unsticking um, and I'm just going to use the term from unified mindfulness, flow, which in this case just means uh, that the experience is less solid. Uh, it's different from flow as used in po positive psychology. So in the UM system, our proxy term for what in Buddhism is called impermanence, 
and what in East Asian medicine and martial arts is called qi, QI. Uh, I just call that flow to have a, a name for it because it, it's fluidity. And it's a pretty good proxy for equanimity. Um, things do tend to phenomenologically become more fluid when there's, well, less coagulation, right? So one issue is, is the stickiness or the grasping or the identification um, one thing or is it two different things? One of the two things called craving and the other one called aversion because early Buddhism has a model that there are three habits that get in the way, raga, dvesha, moha. Now, these are often translated in English as greed, hatred, and delusion, which is poetic and dramatic and gets people's attention, but may not be the better scientific meaning of the term. Um, if craving is a holding on of something that's trying to pass <laughs> and aversion is a interference with something that's trying to arise, then really there, this is just one thing. It's a push and pull or something analogous to viscosity. I didn't say it is viscosity. Analogous to viscosity, friction, impedance, or even perhaps turbulence. Uh, I'm saying analogous, uh, not necessarily the same physical system. Uh, so if it's now you take someone like Sasaki Roshi, who, as far as liberation goes, was probably as liberated as any human I ever interacted with. But his whole thing was not about craving an aversion from early Buddhism. He simplified it to um, uh, not fixating the self. Jiko kotesuru. So, his whole thing was, all you got to do is understand how the self arises and not fixate it. And he would describe to you how it arises and then um, task you with not fixating it. So one thing that is just an issue to think about since we're so influenced in the neuroscience field by the Buddhist formulations. And there's good reason for that because that's the most systematic um, and historically the best preserved of all the world's practice systems. The other practice systems are not well preserved or weren't as systematic or proto-scientific as Buddhism. So there's a reason we're very influenced by Buddhism. But do we want to say that there's two things, craving and aversion that we're letting go of, 
Or do we want to simplify it and say, there's really just one thing. As a positive quality, we would call it equanimity. From a negative point of view, what it's an absence of is absence of self-interference of, and by self, I mean the sensory system in some way fighting with itself, operating in a way that's not good from the viewpoint of efficient energy and information flow. So um, is it really one thing that we're talking about uh, or do we want to go more Buddhist and say it's about craving and aversion? See, I found Sasaki Roshi's way of talking about this whole thing to be very interesting because if it's really about unfixating the perception of self when it arises um, and that would be something that you create by practice but at the same time he says it's also about discovering that the deeper levels of processing ha have no such push and pull on them. They're already in a perfect fluid state. The push and pull comes later. So it's both, there's a training effect. You learn not to fixate the self when it arises, but there's also a discovery effect, which is also training. You discover that at the instant of the arising of every see, hear, feel, think, speak, move. It's, there's no craving and aversion. There's no push and pull at all. It's just effortless entropy and free energy, presumably dancing together, um, a la Friston. So um, if we take that model, that's sort of interesting because now, it's starting to sound like some sort of physical property, like a Reynolds number, a parameter of a, of a system of differential equations, which if you cross a certain critical threshold, you'll get a phase change. Um, so in order to make that real, I think we need to have a, a good way to link the subjective reports with the objective neural phenomenology. So for example, this gets back to what you mentioned that I, Jay, I said this would be a big thing if we can do it. Are, are we seeing a pattern that the loosening up seems to occur in different aspects of self, depending on where we sonicate? Are we that fine-grained enough, or do you think we could get that fine-grained? Um, it at least seems to be a pattern in the phenomenological reports. So people aren't specifically relating it back to self qua self, but they are saying this piece of my experience has 
loosened and this this it's sticky it's really around the term sticking love judd's term because that's really when people don't have a framework for it they just say yeah the i got a little pain but it, it just wasn't sticking around it's just going away and then when you say well how is that oh that's kind of great actually mm. and then and then they say wait a minute is that a, is that a possibility <laughs> you know that that's almost always the chain of, of things for people so it all often comes back to like is this a thing that myself can do <laughs> over time see but I it think... definitely seems like it's it's in the different networks for sure we're getting different pieces of the phenomenology now of course it's really hard to study that and, and we need people like judd to help us figure out how do you ask the right questions about phenomenology well, one just, thing that oh, I have always wanted to parse out and never been able to do in any lab that I was associated with, and maybe the science is good enough now and because of the people we're working with, Tim and so forth, his neuropipe, um, but if someone comes to me or one of our coaches that's a senior coach and says, I want stream entry. That's a goal in my practice. Um, I'm going to say, great. It's good to want that. Um, you can go about that in a lot of different ways, but I have a standard way that I like to start and we'll see what happens. I'm going to give you a technique called see, hear, feel in. And I'm going to have you monitor moment by moment whether you have visual thought or not, whether you have mental talk or not, whether you have body sensation that is obvious to you in that moment to be emotional in nature or not. That's three binary variables. We're obviously making a binary approximation, it's going to be some sort of sigmoid or continuum of some sort. But we're saying just for simplicity's sake. Um, and now I'm going to claim that they're monitoring the core sensory elements that activate when we have a sense of self. We have. And what I'd like to see is originally I had thought it would be interesting if we could monitor as people reported uh, see here, see here, all here, here, see here. If we could actually get differentially what that looks like as they're saying, and then rest would be if the whole system goes inactive spontaneously. So I had always thought it would be cool to be able to monitor, to connect what any experienced UM practitioner can do reporting real-time activation in this inner system. If we could ever link that to uh, reliably to uh, uh, neurophenomenology, that would be great. But now what you're saying, Jay, is 
quite independent of that, we may notice what I'm going to interpret as equanimity, non, the non-stickiness is equanimity. Um, you're saying we may be able to differentiate the equanimity impact of the ultrasound in different subsystems of the default or of the PCC itself or subsystems of the broader network. Which no, one it's were, were broader talking? networks. The broader tried, network. We tried default mode network. We've tried uh, the sort of cognitive end of the basal ganglia with basal ganglia prefrontal loop. So these would be roughly corresponding to that radar plot that Chelsea showed uh, with the different components. So, so that's a whole other way we might bring dimensionality in. If we could, yeah, yeah. and if it's the same effect, which it does seem to be, it seems to induce equanimity, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is important because if equanimity covers both craving and aversion, now all you need is the right direction of clarity to get the insight into no self. And typically that happens through two mechanisms. One is the untangling of the elements so they don't qualitatively cross multiply, producing the perception of somethingness. That's, I believe, how the somethingness goes away. And then the second me mechanism is the equanimity, uh, the non graspingness, which is actually the radical permission for the inner system to activate. Ironically, it's when you so unblock the selfing that it's just the verb called selfing and doesn't coagulate into a reified thingy, thinging. Um, that's one of the ways that people experience stream entry is when you get a full Monty of the inner system, full level of activation, and you notice it arising from beginning to end, and you don't coagulate around it. That's one of the ways that people get set free. So a um, um, couple mechanisms probably enter in um, a clarity that leads to an anti-emergence. Not every emergent property is a good thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> property mm -hmm. self is a thing is actually useful sometimes and useful to be able to get a vacation from a lot of the other time. <laughs> so well, um, I, I don't mean to jump in, but I'm, I want to there's this image that's coming up, Shinzen, and I want to see if this fits with what you're describing. Going back to this, your question around, you know, craving and aversion is separate or, you know, can be brought together as a single, uh, as a single entity, this image of kind of creating an ice cube out of water comes to mind. And when we, when we crave, you know, when we hold on to things, when we push things away, we're adding energy to the system, kind of like, putting water in a freezer, you know, say we live in 
Arizona and we have to add a lot of energy to the system to make ice where it's hot outside. And so we're adding energy to the system just as a, as a habitual process where the mind somehow has gotten this idea that selfing is a good, you know, that clinging, uh, that holding on to things and pushing away things is, a, is, is helpful you know, because we've been reinforced in certain ways to do that. So there I could see, you know, that ice cube, whether we're holding on to it or pushing it away, doesn't matter. We're still adding energy to the system. So I think that if I'm understanding correctly, that seems to fit with um, what, uh, uh, what you're talking about around, you know, it could be two things. It could be one thing. They're both related. But here also, the way you're describing equanimity and also the system that you use to help people uh, move towards stream entry is kind of, you know, adding, so we could think of it as adding energy to a system, like adding a, a heat source to the ice cube where we are melting the ice, helping taking that energy. And instead of trying to make the ice colder or make it, you know, lower temperature, we're actually adding energy to the system and allowing that system to thaw out and then become fluid again, where, and then when it's totally fluid, I think of that as equanimity because you can't, you know, you can, you can push, you can throw an ice cube, you can hold onto an ice cube, but water just flows out of your hand. And there too, I wonder if I'm probably taking this analogy too far, but I'll, you know, I'm gonna keep going, is seeing that the ice will melt itself simply through awareness. So we could bring that heat source in through the noting practice or through your, your practice, where it helps, you know, it may, reminds me of the observer effect in physics, right? By observing, you're affecting the result. In psychology, I see the same thing using these practices, it helps people gain some perspective and some distance and not be as identified with their thoughts and their emotions. And that in itself is, is joyful. I think as Jay is talking about, oh, you know, that lack of stickiness actually feels pretty darn good. And when we see that it feels pretty darn good, we can realize that we don't actually have to add the heat source to it. And we can just simply rest in awareness and that darn block of ice will melt on its own. And I wonder if that melting process, as it starts melting on its own, and we realize that we can just be, you know, we can just be an awareness of it. I, I don't know where that would fit within the realm of pre or post dream entry or, or along the spectrum. It probably doesn't even matter, but just the, the letting go of not having to add energy to the system first with not making the thing colder, right? Adding tons of energy there. Second, not having to add energy to try to melt the ice. And third, just seeing that awareness itself, you know, may be joyful enough and, and the not having to do anything is the, is the ultimate form of, you know, of, of joy where it's like, oh, we put down the burden. So I don't know, am I getting, is that, I don't know if that analogy works, but that's just what comes up in listening to what you're saying. Well, um, I think that. thinking of these things in terms of some sort of phase change is scientifically a good way to think about it. If, if we can make it work that way, if we can make it analogous to uh, a phase change. Um, I would say timing in my experience is very important. 
I know that sounds completely abstract. What the hell does that mean? Well, let me put it into context. Um, so let's say that a person starts with this see, hear, feel in technique. So they're going to observe moment by moment the level of activation of visual thought, auditory thought, and body emotion. So um, initially, you know, there's a pretty, or I'm not going to say initially, broadly, there's uh, a pretty predictable arc that people will go through with an approach like this. The first is to claim it or to say, this doesn't feel like meditation. Uh, I did mantra, I visualized, uh, I looked at a candle flame, I visualized world peace, you know, I counted my breath. It took me into a certain state. What you're asking me to do here, noting, see, hear, feel, perhaps speaking even the words out loud, this isn't meditation. That's usually the first reaction uh, because it, it takes a little while to learn how to track things like this. So no, initially you may not drop as deep, but there's a learning curve. And at some point it's like, oh, the noting process sort of goes on autopilot and you can get a sense that you're dropping into a deep state, even though you're really clearly uh, and in a very fine-grained way uh, monitoring your sensory experience. So more and more that ability to monitor sort of becomes habitual, like driving a car. At first, you have to think about every little thing. At some point, you just get in and driving happens. So I'm giving you sort of a typical learning curve. Then there's often some confusion because sometimes you have a thought and it doesn't seem to be a mental image or mental talk. It just sort of pops into existence fully formed. And I can't parse it with those categories. And that's, and then there's other confusions that people typically have, but you sort of get over that and get over some of those awkward questions about the technique. And then what starts to happen is that the surface activity becomes much less in the inner system, but it's still there. It's much more fluid, but you're still thinking, you're still having emotions. Um, but now you start to notice before you get the surface awareness, there's a kind of stirring at your mental screen before you get the surface image, fleeting though it may be, of the person, place, object, memory, plan, fantasy, scene, what have you. It's like uh, there's a kind of stirring on the screen. And then there's an image. There's a kind of stirring in mental talk space. And then there's some mental talk. And then you start to notice before that stirring, there's a tug to image space, the place where I would look to find an image. 
just the tug of the space. There's a tug to talk space. There's a tug to the body space before I've felt anything at all. And you realize that those tugs are the beginning of the next actual round of processing in sensory or expression circuits. And you don't need to know what it is because you know what, uh, when it is. That's a moment of arising. I give it permission to flow in the depths without needing to know it or control it. That's now pointing you to the fact that the depths without needing any surface knowing or controlling are handling 99.9% .9 of every goddamn thing that has to be handled perfectly thanks to two billion plus years of terrestrial evolution. It's all there in those circuits. Um, and this is now pointing you through a tangible series of experiences that people will statistically tend to pass through over a period of a number of years to where, oh, I do see that it's always primordially complete. But what I'm describing is an actual tangible sequence that we can algorithmically lead a person through mm -hmm. over a period of many years of practice. So this this makes me think we were talking a lot about the individual self, and I'm wondering if this can even start to relate to selves relating to each other. So sorry to continue with the ice cube analogy, but you know the ice cubes are you can think of them as individual ice cubes, and as they start to melt, they might start to flow into each other, and so they might start to lose their differentiation. So I'm curious, and I don't know. Chelsea, if there's a place that you want to start here, uh, but I'm wondering if we could explore what that's like to, so we're exploring this dissolving or the loosening or the, you know, moving the phase shift of the individual self and starting to move into more fluid, fluidity where, you know, we flow together and there might be consciousness that is less confined to one ice cube, so to speak. But I'm, I'm wondering if, if that might be a place to explore for a few minutes, like what, what that might look like as, you know, as we all uh, use Shinzen system, for example, to start to melt these cubes. I have thoughts on this topic, as you all know. Um, Todd Mertz, who is Shinzen's community manager for many years, and I sometimes ponder the idea of adding an extra C onto the CCE paradigm. And we had talked about it being communion. Um, Jay brought up the fact that connection would also work. But uh, in my view, this extra C wouldn't be simply another element equal to CCE, but would be something like a two-bodied CCE experience. And I was reading your article, Judd, about um, 
let's see what the official title is because it's quite long but beautiful feeling maybe, is believing go on jay i was gonna say maybe you want to define cce really quickly oh yeah sorry concentration clarity and equanimity so we could say that connection or communion is applying concentration clarity and equanimity to something outside of yourself that has its own volitional activity right whether that's an animal or nature or a friend or a community or a partner, it would inherently be different from doing a clarity connection. I mean, sorry, I'm substituting in my own seat. Uh, concentration, clarity, and equanimity only on yourself because there's another uh, system involved. So I think often about if you all succeed and this project goes forward of giving people more access to these states of self-dissolution, how that will actually impact dyads and communities and what that will look like. And I was reading your article, uh, Dr. Brewer, Feeling is Believing, the Convergence of Buddhist Theory and Modern Scientific Evidence Supporting How Self is Formed and Perpetuated Through Feeling Tone. And in it, you use an example about cigarette smoking and how through this process of habituation and operant conditioning, we come to expect that some activity Will make us feel a certain way and we develop a sort of inattentional blindness and perceptual narrowing so that we just expect the cigarette to do a certain thing and the more we expect that the less attuned we are to the richness of our experience and my immediate thought when i read this is well what about when we do that to each other hmm. when the cigarette is another person and we're expecting them to appear in a certain way over and over so that we actually become blind to the fact that they are a fluctuating process of becoming. And so I started thinking about what would happen if everyone was experiencing these things that you all want them to experience and what relationships would begin to look like. I don't know if that's helpful or I hope so. I love it. <laughs> Well, I'll just say one little thing because I've been speaking a lot and I'd love to hear what Jay and Shinsen have to say, but it makes me think of, you know, we, we create our perceptual and expectational habits of others. You know, it's like, I, you know, if I have a, a life partner and I see them in a certain way, when they do something that is not expected, my brain gets an, you know, an error term that says not, you know, that was a, that was a prediction error. It's not what I predicted. And what do our brains do? They contract around that. No, you should have done this. And so could that even start to help us open to one, you know, not being so reactive to not just our partners, that's an example, but to our neighbors, to our, to everyone, but also help us it would start to develop, just naturally develop compassion for others, because we are the ones creating our own suffering by expecting people to act a certain way. And then when they don't, we get angry because of our own, our own expectations, not necessarily because of what they did. So there, there's a piece there. Like, does this even apply to, you know, to develop the natural development of compassion simply through clear seeing, but does it also apply to starting to just see the, you know, the, the beautiful fluidity of life and how how we can just put down the burden of of all of this of expectation and then see what happens do we naturally start to connect more with others the less we expect of them you know and then on and on because i could see kindness i could see 
you know, deep, rich connection happening naturally because it just feels good when we put down our expectations. So that, that's just what immediately comes to mind, but I'm curious what other folks think. Yeah, no, I think that's a great reflection. And, you know, I think what comes to mind for me in thinking about this bigger topic of interventions that can fundamentally phase shift the sense of self. Uh, and I often get the question asked to me and about the work with Shenzhen is, well, what if you have a brain zapper and you can just zap away the self? Is that what you're trying to do? The answer is always, of course, no, because that would not be a functional way to be humans in the world. And, you know, if we could just scale out a device to 7 billion people that brain zapped away their sense of self, the whole thing would fall apart. You know, I think we can predict that pretty easily. And so, you know, when I'm thinking, Jed, about your analogy, let's just take it all the way in. If you have a device or a psychedelic that can show a person that they are the ice cube, they are the water, they are all the processes that compose all of that, Again, if you don't have a scaffold, even understand how that relates to you in the world and what, what does that mean for you? you? You've had this whole model of separation and function and you know, suffering is good. Suffering has helped me learn from the world. You have all these notions around that. Now, all of a sudden you get this phase shift, your perspective shifts you know, 180 or 360 degrees, whatever it is. And you say, oh, wait a minute, I am the ice cube. <laughs> like, what do I do now? Um, and I think there's a big gap for the nervous system between all the habits that have formed in the circuitry that have helped you act in the world in a certain way to survive and the conscious phase shift of I am the ice cube and everyone's the ice cube. <laughs> you know, holy crap, what do I do with that? And there's a lot of training that needs to happen in between to get a new human being that can have that type of knowledge, whatever that really is you know, the true self, the true knowledge in a functionally actionable way in the world. And, uh, you know, that's where I think the, uh, I really like the Buddhist term of skillful action, because from a, from a reductionist neuroscience point of view, the whole, the whole goal of the system is to figure out what to do in the world, specifically to spread the genes and, you know, promote the, the agenda of the animal. And so it really comes down to that question of action. And now we have this very sophisticated sense of self thing that's trying to organize all of the sensory inputs and high level goals and low level goals and trying to get the hierarchy of needs all lined up so you can be self-actualized and go out in the world and save the world or whatever you're trying to do. And now you're talking about this huge phase shift and you need that container, that new container to put it in. And so Chelsea, I think that sort of getting back to your question of how do you how do you be a thing in the world that's got this phase shift interacting with other things in the world, other people in the world that may not have that? And you're trying to navigate that. And probably the answer is you just need to develop some other skills to <laughs> make that thing work. <laughs> and we may be able to, to help that along. You know, that's kind of the goal in the lab. And I think a goal of a lot of the psychedelic research is to help that system learn a little faster how to update the model or undo the model or whatever actually is happening underneath the surface. We um, talk about accelerating uh, the process of mindfulness training um, from the viewpoint of neuromodulation 
And uh, I would include under that the resurgence of psychedelic research. There's a lot of interesting molecules out there that are being approached maturely now. Um, that's all on a continuum. So there's what we can do perhaps at the molecular level or with non-invasive, but very precise neuromodulation. Um, what we can do to speed up, uh, accelerate, meaning not make it easy and fast, but make it easier and faster. <laughs> um, but not too easy or too fast <laughs> that it doesn't work for you. And then the other thing that we are looking into is AI to automate the support. So whenever we bring up things like neuromodulation or AI, there's a standard list of yabbas, yabbuts, objections that people have that we know they're going to say. <laughs> it's absolutely predictable. Um, for AI, they're going to say this, this, and this. For neuromodulation, they're going to say this, this, and this. And um, so I think one of the important things that anyone who is doing scientific research on things like meditation, particularly anyone who might be doing something practical and translational, like, can we make this more available to people? I think there's two concepts that are not talked about um, much, and one concept that is talked about and the above is in the psychedelic literature. And the two concepts that aren't talked about are very, very important. And they're our answer to um, some of the objections that people have to, well, you're just trying to zap someone's brain and you know, induce artificial enlightenment, or like, something like that. So the two concepts, and, and we have a name for them, are integration and conceptual framework. So once again, just to speak to the system that I created, and I know what's in it because I intentionally put these elements in it for these reasons, um, in the UM system, we don't just give you a bunch of techniques and a vague sort of breathe and smile and know that you're okay and uh, whatever. We have this very elaborate framework, develop the skills, optimize the happiness. Here's what the skills are. Here's how you develop them. Here's the mechanism whereby these skills actually do optimize 20 independent dimensions of human happiness. Um, so people have a very motivating framework of understanding what they're doing, how it all fits together. And one of the criticisms that we sometimes get of our apps 
is, well, they seem like a class in school. Yeah, they're supposed to be a class. They're supposed to give you a framework because I think that's very important. And as Jay mentioned, when people get high or have other things that happen with, for whatever reason, even get spontaneous stream entry experiences, but that, that latch and stick, they're in the no-self, they're in the oneness. If they don't have a framework, hopefully they'll get one. It used to be in the old days, there wasn't dozens and dozens of people on the internet who have had spontaneous enlightenment experiences without meditation. So you were often lost. Now at least you can go to the internet and find other people you know, you have a framework. So I think the framework is very important and the conceptual framework in creating a system that is effective for people. And how you provide someone with a framework for psychedelic experiences and so forth, well, that's an issue. The second thing is something we call integration. It's what Jay just mentioned. It's the degree to which those altered states are number one traits. So you can just access them in daily life on demand. But number two, and this is where the main integration uh, action is, to what extent are you able to utilize those altered states, call it oneness, emptiness, call it what you want, um, to what extent are you able to utilize them to have a life that is humanly fulfilling and objectively efficacious? Um, that, is, that requires training, systematic training, extended training. So I think what's not being mentioned enough in some of the literature about no self and psychedelics is the importance of a, a, a good framework that they can grow with and the importance of integrating these altered states, I repeat, into what is a life that is fulfilled in the normal human sense of fulfilled and admirable in terms of actions in the world. You were loved in life and missed in death. You're that kind of human. And you used what is not human to help you achieve that extraordinariness of humanity. The thing that is mentioned increasingly, I think in the psychedelic literature that is getting Jay and I's attention is the notion of anti-fragility. I think that that's a good notion and uh, maybe we don't have to get into that now, but I'm gonna claim that what we call equanimity would be a primary example of an anti-fragility, uh, a, a skill such that when the going gets tough, the tough get going. So I'm, I'm wondering if, 
just to start to bring this all full circle and together, you know, the fragility, I, I think of an ice sculpture being a lot more fragile than a glass, than a bucket of water. <laughs> if you, if you drop the ice sculpture on the floor, it, it does something very different than if you dump the bucket of water on the floor. So, so I'm, I'm wondering if this is a good place for us to start kind of thinking about this from, you know, we started with this concept of self and starting to just appreciate the complexity of the different elements through the, the radar plots and whatnot. And also starting to zoom in on, you know, which, which part of the system we might specifically target to um, one, provide the education like you're talking about Shinzen, where we help people see how painful it is to hold on where we help people see how painful it is to push things away, just to see how much energy they're adding to the system to make that ice colder and more rigid, more fragile even. And then bring in, I could even see bring in baseline assessments where we could see where somebody is holding on or pushing away in particular. You know, is it an embodied element? Is it an emotional element? Is it a thought element? And bring in your, your ultrasound as a way to, to start melting the ice in a way that people can see, oh, this ice can be melted. Oh, it actually feels better to melt the ice than to add energy in to try to make the ice more rigid. And I, you know, to, just to be a little provocative, Shinzen, I wonder if this might be where we all explore together, you know, is there a level of complexity in certain systems, in certain educational systems? And I'll, I, I don't know your apps well enough to uh, to critique, but you know, is there a way to simplify some of how we uh, educate people to really get at the essence of it? And I say this as a clinician who's you know <laughs> very little time with my patients, and they have very little very little patience with me in terms of like I, I you know I'm suffering, I need some help. Are there ways that we might all work together, put our heads together to say, you know, how do we refine this educational system? to get at the heart of it, to help people provide that heat source themselves once they have felt the heat of the melting. And then, you know, ultimately, uh, going back to what Chelsea was talking about, how do we start to see what it feels like as we melt and flow together? And maybe even really taking the analogy a little too far, seeing what happens you know, when that water evaporates. <laughs> so, so I don't know if that's a, a, a kind of a good challenge for us to really say, okay, let's, let's do this. Let's put our heads together. Um, but that's kind of how I'm, I'm integrating this, you know, and, and bringing that whole educational as well as experiential system together. And then Shinzen, like you're pointing out, bring in these common elements that we can predict where somebody might run into a roadblock and even bring in some, some AI to help those road, those common roadblocks so that they can, it can be more easily scaled. I have to wow. ask this question before, before we like get off this call, which I feel like is concluding because I'm just so curious. So I'm just, I really want to know Dr. Brewer in your clinical work, you know, we're talking about all, we've talked about the self is multidimensional. And then we've talked about how you can target different brain areas to get to those different self-states, but then how pretty much when you pull on one thread, it seems like the whole network just sort of starts to dissolve. And so it makes me think there's probably a ton of ways that people have pulled those threads for themselves without really knowing it. And I'm really wondering in your work, 
have you found what kind of ways have you found that people start to access that besides meditation maybe and then secondly what kind of effects do you see on people's relationships and on their integration just naturally like what's reported when people say oh I had this no self-state and now x changed you know you just have this really amazing volume of clinical experience I would just love to know how that kind of works for your clients naturally yeah so really briefly you know, I tend not to use terms like self and no self, because uh, that can be, it can get people locked into hardening, you know, more rigidity as they're trying to figure out like what is self or trying to, trying to force themselves <laughs> into stream entry or something like that. Ironically, would, you know, it freezes that block of ice even more. So here, I really just tap into the reward-based learning system because it, that's relatively straightforward for everyone to understand because we all have experiences of it, you know, probably in the last five, 10 minutes, you know, like if a patient walks into my clinic, I could probably pinpoint with them, you know, sometime when they were clinging or had a version in the last five or 10 minutes, even sitting in the waiting room, you know? And so everybody knows this experientially. And so I start there because they know that in their bones without concepts like, oh yeah, that, oh yeah, that's what it feels like, whether it's a craving or, you know, an aversion to something and not even necessarily using the term aversion. So I actually start there and then just help them, you know, help them explore what they get from holding on, what they get from pushing away, you know, and this was actually the basis for some of our, some of our own apps that we developed around, you know, everything from smoking to eating to anxiety is really tapping into that reward-based learning system. Like, you know, how rewarding is that really? You know, and I might have mentioned before we just published a paper with our right now app, just having people pay attention as they overrate, and it only took ten or fifteen times for them to realize that that was not rewarding. And so, in that sense, that helps people see, oh, when I put element, when I put energy into the system and make the ice more rigid, it's actually worse. It makes things worse. And then we have them pay attention as they overeat and see what it's like when they stop, when they stop before they're full, for example, and they see that it's less painful. And so, oh, there's already, you know, we've tapped into that reward-based learning system. And so it, I think that's hundred percent in alignment with what we're talking about here, but I just start with wherever somebody's at, whatever they're, whatever they're suffering from, we can bring awareness to that. We can help them see, you know, if you take the Buddhist concept of dependent origination, we can help them see that through the simple lens of reinforcement learning, you know, just mapping that out and then bringing awareness in and helping them see that awareness itself helps melt the ice cube uh, without having to do something, you know, instead of forcing themselves not to overeat, they can simply notice what it's like to overeat, become disenchanted using the Buddhist terminology. And then also becoming enchanted with the letting go of overeating and, and bringing awareness in to meet their physiologic needs of, you know, hunger, but not moving beyond that to the wants. I want more food or the clean plate club or whatever it is. So that's what I do from a pragmatic standpoint, but it really comes back to noticing, you know, the, the contraction and the expansion, noticing the closeness that comes from wanting more and opening, noticing the openness that comes from simply being curious and aware. And I'll throw in kindness in particular as well, you know, noticing what it's like when we're jerks to other people, noticing what it's like when we're kind or when others are kind to us.
a kinder, gentler B.F. Skinner. <laughs> yes. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. <laughs> For sure. But it is behavior. This is the good side of behaviorism. I mean, there was something to all of that. And the, the Buddha, one of his titles is Anuttaro Purisadhammasarati, which means the unexcelled trainer of the animal within the human. I take animal not to be a pejorative, like, oh, you're so primitive, but animal to be architectural layers. Yes, yeah. we're training the part that still behaves like a reptile to be not just an intelligent social primate, but an angelic one. Hmm. I love that. <laughs> May we all evaporate into angels. <laughs> Well, on that note, thank you all so much. This has been just so fantastic. I think it might be productive maybe in four or five months to reconvene, uh, perhaps sooner, and to see uh, where the thinking and the work you're all doing together and separately has, has moved on this. Uh, so fascinating. I'll just end then by saying Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, and very special guest returning, and to return again, I hope, Dr. Judd Brewer. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.